welcome to part 12 of 20 Years On, the series where we chart the changes in Hong Kong life since July the 1st, 1997. I'm Anna Fenton, and in this, the final program in the series, I discuss changes to the rule of law with three legal experts. First, I met up with barrister Clive Grossman, who described how he saw changes to the practice, as well as the rule of law in Hong Kong, over the last 20 years. The last 20 years has shown worldwide an enormous change in uh, and advances in technology which has affected most professions but not the law uh, we still wear wigs in court we address judges as my lord or your worship or whatever we call each other my learned friend whether we mean it or not we're still behaving basically um, as the english did in these about the 17th century so technology has not affected us that much and because we're conservative we rely on precedent etc so in the practice of law there have been some changes but not great deal a great deal of change i would say uh, the change that comes about is minimal marginal and uh, you can see it in a gradual way for instance, now you can take, uh, or young people do take, uh, their iPads into court and they type everything. This was unthinkable 20 years ago. Absolutely. Yes. Um, the, the era is coming, I think, of what we would call paperless trials. At the moment, people like me anyway, we have all everything in hard copy. But some judges now want everything in soft copy, and I think that's the way of the future the next generation, or even this generation of uh, barristers certainly, uh, will be looking at soft copy cases. So you won't be lugging around little suitcases on wheels full of papers? Well, not only little suitcases, but sometimes dozens of suitcases. But yes, I think that's, that probably is the position. At the moment, I think most of us prefer hard copies, but uh, certainly the younger barristers, younger solicitors too, I think, are far happier with soft copies, which of course makes a lot more sense. It's simply a question of getting used to it. Yes, I suppose all change is difficult in, in the early stages, isn't it? Absolutely, especially in a conservative profession where you do what you used to do because that's the way we, we are, that's the way we practice. So if we walked into a Hong Kong court now, it would look very much the same as it did 20 years ago, except it'd be some iPads and phones around. That's, that's absolutely right. And the, the, the way that we would address a magistrate or a judge is exactly the same. Um, we call each other my learned friend, whether we mean it or not. <laughs> um, and we bow um, as if it's to royalty, and the judge or the magistrate will bow back to us. And we stand until he's gone out of court He's sat, he's, he or she has sat down. So it's very much 17th century English behaviour. I see, I see. Now, I don't think we would say 17th century English behaviour is what's been going on lately with the arguments about the rule of law. So where have we seen changes with the basic law and rule of law in terms of our daily lives in Hong Kong? Well, uh, obviously there have been some changes uh, since 1997 because the basic law permits uh, China to make decisions but I think my view is that to the majority of people in Hong Kong these things are irritants and they don't change basically 
the commitment that our judges have and, in fact, the profession has to the rule of law. I mean, when you look at the rule of law, it's really a phrase that is used mainly by politicians. But what it means is that government pass laws and the, law, and the courts enforce them fairly and objectively. That's what it means. Um, we're still very lucky, I think, to have a situation here similar to that in England but not a lot of other countries especially not in the, not the United States where judges are chosen generally on merit if they want to be if people want to become judges uh, despite what I've been reading in the newspaper and hearing uh, I don't believe for one single moment that the judges here are told by China what they must do and what they mustn't do. You're categorically sure about that? I'm absolutely positive. I mean, I know these judges. Why should they do it? It makes no difference. They retire at a certain age or they don't retire at a certain age. It doesn't make the slightest difference. Why on earth should they compromise uh, their integrity? Why on earth should they uh, compromise what they've always sworn to uphold as the rule of law? I don't see why not. One might or might not agree uh, with the sentences that have been passed on, on these uh, protesters recently. What's your take on that? Because to me, as an outsider, looking at what happened to Nathan Law and mm. Joshua Wong, it seemed very strange to let them serve their community services and the various things they'd already received and then come back and have a second bite. Well, the simple fact of the matter is that the Department of Justice made a decision uh, to appeal the sentences, and the Court of Appeal said, yes, you are quite right to appeal the sentences because they were too low. And if the Court of Appeal says that, then who are we to say, no, no, they're wrong? Of course, some people may say, well, you know, these are just young, stupid people. You shouldn't send them to prison. Other people have different views. The simple fact of the matter is, as far as the law in Hong Kong is concerned, what the Court of Appeal, or ultimately the Court of Final Appeal says goes. Mm. And if they say to the Department of Justice, in effect, yes, I'm glad you brought that you appealed this, because we need to make a, a broad statement to the community, you cannot do this kind of behaviour. And I think, uh, well, it's not a question whether I think they were right, by definition they're right, unless mm. the Court of Final Appeal overturns them, by definition they're right. Mm -hmm. Do you think this will send a message um, that will make Hong Kong people more anxious and, and nervous at a time when they're already fairly anxious and nervous? No, I don't think so, really. I think this is something that uh, people will forget about. It, it, look, at the end of the day, it hasn't caused uh, any kind of disruption in the way of life, in the way that we, we, we live our lives here. I mean, these hurricanes, last, these typhoons last week caused far more disruption. <laughs> I mean, in, in a realistic sense. Yeah. Well, there'll still be lots of talk about it, and uh, uh, people will say it's wrong, it's unjust, and people will sh shoot their mouth off and say, it must have been China who told the judges to do it. I simply don't believe it. Mm. it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I've read the judgments, and not that it's up to me to say whether they're right or wrong, because by definition they're right, but I could certainly see the way the Court of Appeal judges... Uh, decided the matter, looked at the matter I don't think anybody looking at it objectively can say oh this has obviously got a political aspect to it there was a careful uh, analysis of the facts and of the way in which 
punishment for this kind of behaviour has happened in the, has been dealt with in the past, and I think it was important that, from my point of view, that each judge gave a separate judgment. So one can't say, oh, well, this one just agreed with the other one. It may, you know, he, he didn't want to say anything. And so you've got three separate judges all giving their views, giving in strong terms, and by definition they're right. In general terms, do you see any other changes from, from 97 in, in day-to-day life? Well, I think um, I was looking back on, on this. I think one of the most significant changes is there are far more Chinese people at the bar, far more cases take place in Chinese, and basically this is a Chinese city. I'm not saying it from the point of view it belongs to China, but you know the majority of people here are Chinese and speak China and speak Cantonese, and uh, a lot more cases I'm told, large number of cases, especially in the magistracy, are in uh, held in Cantonese. Yes, I can vouch for that. Yes, yes, and it tends only to be if one of the parties or one of the uh, council lawyers are English speaking, Mm. it'll be in English. I think that's a major difference. It doesn't affect over. if one looks at it from an overall point of view, it doesn't affect the quality of uh, the justice that's handed out, but it's, it's a major point, it's a major matter. A lot of the cases now that come down are in Cantonese, have to be translated for people like me. I think that is a major, a major point. Mm, mm. And of course, it also means that a uh, majority of judges, especially the new judges and magistrates, are Chinese people. So that effectively excludes foreigners and Westerners from. It doesn't exclude it. It just means that uh, there's fewer of us. Mm. There's fewer of us uh, in practice. And I, I can see that there's always going to be foreigners at the bar, yeah, as there are in every country. But I would think uh, as time goes on, it'll be more and more or less exclusive. You see, there's far more universities than they have. I say far more, I think one or two more universities uh, um, producing uh, students now, and they're nearly all Chinese here. Mm. Not, not a great deal of Westerners. Uh, go to study law here. And also, of course, you now, since 1997 and the years that have passed, getting more mainland Chinese coming here. And they, the ones that come here, of course, have studied English and in a, in a, as a second language, study law, which is completely bizarre if you've been brought up in mainland China, I would think. So we tend to get the very, very bright ones. Mm, mm. That's my experience anyway. Right. Now, do you have any thoughts on Article 23? Do you think we're going to see that brought in soon? Uh, Soon, I don't know. That's a political decision. But as far as I recall, it was, uh, and I'm not certain of this, but I think it was um, mandated at the time of the handover that it would be brought in. So I suppose sometime or other it will be. Uh, And how it's brought in is... And what the wording is going to be specifically uh, is something that the politicians must sort out. But I've no doubt it's going to cause a lot of uh, fuss uh, because uh, people will say, as they say to just about anything the government does that they don't like, oh, well, this is mainland China taking over and what's happened to one country, two systems, etc. But it'll happen, I think. That was Barrister Clive Grossman. 
Back in 1997, the government declared its intention to make Hong Kong an international arbitration hub. I headed to Admiralty to meet specialist arbitration lawyer Julian Cohen to hear whether they have succeeded or not. Arbitration is a form of dispute resolution where two people who have a dispute, normally over something commercial or a contract, agree to have an independent third person decide the case for them who is not a judge. Right. Now, this could be a case involving a big construction project or a, a shipping uh, cargo or any number of things, right? Absolutely. It can be those sorts of things down to IT disputes um, or even consumer disputes. But it tends to involve large amounts of money and big contracts. Not necessarily. Um, there's a whole range of things from vast um, arbitrations up to sort of two or three billion US dollars that I've done. The last one that I've been involved with as an arbitrator, um, the claim was very, very small. So it's a whole range of sums in dispute. Okay, so you could have a dispute arising in China, uh, but they would the parties would choose to have the arbitration handled outside of China, and they can pick their legal jurisdiction for this, as I understand. If you're talking about China, then you have to make sure that you're talking about two parties, one of whom may be Chinese and the other is non-Chinese. If that's the case, then yes, they're free to pick. If it's two Chinese entities, PRC entities, they have to dis resolve their dispute in, in the PRC. But if it's a PRC entity and an international company or person then they can choose to have it resolved anywhere in the world. Now, I believe our big um, com competitors for this, not surprisingly, is Singapore. How do we shape up if we're compared to uh, an arbitration as an arbitration centre with Singapore? I think at the moment we are in reasonable shape. We still are having more cases in Hong Kong than Singapore is seeing. We are still ranked um, probably third in the world behind London and Paris as an arbitration centre. However, that I think is starting to change. Singapore has invested in a way Hong Kong has not. Hong Kong's invested, but not as much. And we're starting to see, I think, Singapore pulling ahead. So I, I think there is a real risk that if we were talking in, say, five or six years' time, we might be saying Singapore has pulled ahead. Now, what would be the reason for them to pull ahead? Uh, there are probably a number of reasons. One of the biggest is that there is a perception outside Hong Kong that having your, your dispute resolved in Hong Kong is not impartial or independent if you've got a Chinese party. In other words, there is a perception outside Hong Kong that if you arbitrate in Hong Kong with the Chinese party, people will favour the Chinese party. Is that true? Absolutely not. So that's an unfortunate perception, isn't it? it? It is. It's probably an inevitable concern of people, but it is unfortunate and it's something that it, it's important that we continue to try and counteract. Right. Now, we hear a lot of negative things about rule of law and how it is or isn't deteriorating. Where arbitration is concerned, it's a bit of a success story, isn't it? Because under the rule of law um, umbrella, we've expanded this area of legal business for, for Hong Kong. We have. Um, the government has invested. Uh, we have seen in, over the last few years a new arbitration uh, legislation which brings up uh, the quality of the framework for arbitration to 
absolutely world-class standards and very modern. We've just been in the forefront of introducing third-party funding to arbitration, which is very much ahead of the curve. What does that mean? Third-party funding means that if you've got two people in dispute and one of them can't fund it or doesn't want to, to pay the legal costs, they can go off and find a third party who will actually pay, yeah, who will invest in the dispute and who will, as an investment, pay for that party to go to arbitration. Assuming there's a satisfactory outcome and they'll make some money? Absolutely. Gosh, that sounds very cutthroat. Uh, it, it's going to be very interesting. So this is sort of turning this sort of law into a commercial venture almost? You're absolutely right. If someone can back a horse in the race and put money on it? Absolutely, and I think it gives rise to quite a lot of difficulties. But what is interesting was Hong Kong was ahead of the curve in releasing a law reform paper on introducing this and allowing it. Uh, Singapore then... Um, jumped straight in and managed to get the legislation up and running even faster than we have. We've now introduced it, but you've got this absolutely cutthroat race going on now between Hong Kong and Singapore. Is this the way the law should be going, do you think? That's a very, very difficult question. I think, on the one hand, it's important that disputes are resolved efficiently and in a way that um, allows people to have access to justice. On the other hand, you have to ensure that we do have rule of law, that there is due process, and that decisions are not uh, reached because someone has a an investor with very deep pockets up against uh, a small entity or a small company with small limited pockets, and therefore suddenly the, the, the person with an investor behind it um, does better because of the funding. I see. This sounds like a very grey area. It is. So we hear about backlogs in the courts here. Do arbitration cases get dealt with promptly or do they get in a long line like so many other cases do? Ninety, Probably 95% of my work is in arbitration, possibly even more. I generally feel that arbitration is not as fast and as efficient as it should be. However, when I come across matters in court and talk to colleagues who are in court regularly, the backlog in courts at the moment in Hong Kong appears to be worsening. And so arbitration... Is that a progressive thing since 97, generally? I'm not sure that I can answer that question. But is it your impression that cases are taking longer to get to court? My, certainly my impression is that... There are more and more lawyers who are interested in exploring arbitration because of frustrations with the underfunded judiciary. The, the frustrations are not there about the judiciary themselves, um, who for the most part are seen to be doing an extremely good job in very difficult circumstances. Rather, the frustrations are the fact that the public purse doesn't fund the judiciary sufficiently and therefore you don't have enough judges, you don't have enough research assistants and the, the system grinds very, very slowly as a result. So if you had to grade Hong Kong on its um, ambitions in '97 to make Hong Kong an arbitration centre, how are we doing? I would say we're doing very well. We have an absolute up-to-date infrastructure. We have very, very good lawyers, both international 
and domestic and we still attract a lot of um, business. The question becomes what happens in the next five to six years. That was Barrister Julian Cohen. Finally, I caught up with international human rights lawyer Mark Daly, who explained his concerns about recent developments in the Hong Kong administration and legal system. We mostly do judicial review, which is cases against the government, and uh, this obviously brings us to uh, most of the cases are in the human rights area. So you're dealing with a fundamental human rights issue and challenging the government, a decision in that area, and uh, those are our main, uh, main areas of law right now. Okay, now as far as rule of law goes, how have things panned out in 20 years for you? First of all, I'd like to define what we mean by the rule of law, because the, the term gets thrown around quite a bit, and I think different people have uh, um, misconceptions over what the rule of law means. Uh, I like to use the United Nations definition of the rule of law, which, which encapsulates a whole lot of elements, um, and I'd like to read out a few of those, just so people know what we're talking about, which is really... Um, regardless of the legal system, minimum standards um, for for a legal system and for the rule of law. So some of these include um, laws that are independently adjudicated, they are consistent with international human rights norms, equality before the law, accountability to the law, fairness in the application of the law, separation of powers, participation in decision-making, legal certainty, avoidance of arbitrariness and procedural and legal transparency. Right. So that's the UN definition of the rule of law. There's a UN web website. People can look that up. And, you know, if we contrast that with across the border, um, they don't adhere to, that, to those principles. So the mainland, I uh, can read you the uh, definition from Xi Jinping's book, The Rule of Law, this is what he says, the rule of law is a fundamental principle by which the party leads the people in running the country. So quite a different concept of the rule of law, uh, and I think many people would say we don't really have the rule of law across the border, and uh, we do still in Hong Kong. But there are a lot of threats to the rule of law in Hong Kong. So I think it's very dangerous for those who have a certain amount of authority over Hong Kong to be attacking our judiciary with comments. Uh, I think the biggest threat is interpretations. Um, for me, they are fundamentally anti-rule of law to have interpretations, uh, basically infiltrating Hong Kong's legal system, and particularly the last one, which, which, which took place while court proceedings were going on in Hong Kong. So that was even more dangerous, I think, uh, a precedent than, uh, than previous interpretations. Which cases are you referring the oath, to? The oath-taking. The oath-taking. Right. So to have, uh, um, which is effectively a, uh, a, a political decision being made and infiltrating our legal system while court proceedings were going on, I think that's damaging to the rule of law. We just, just saw the fight... Uh, McGregor, Mayweather, uh, each time you have an interpretation, it's a body blow to the rule of law in Hong Kong. So I think there needs to be a, a lot of education, um, and the people in authority in Hong Kong, 
and particularly the uh, the Secretary for Justice and our leaders, the uh, Bar, the Law Society, need to be making many, much more efforts to explain the difference in our legal system to those across the border uh, uh, because we can't have those type of pressures on our legal system. Now, when I'm talking about pressure, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, some have said uh, the judges here are being influenced or they're being pressurized. It's not direct pressure. We're not talking about anybody phoning up or threatening them if they don't decide a certain way. But I'm a legal realist. Uh, there is this context. There are these pressures in, in the sense of uh, these comments being made, and judges are human. The legal system is, uh, is, is populated by people who are human, and uh, I'm a legal realist that these things perhaps are going through their mind, even, even if the, in some cases they're thinking uh, um, they want to avoid interpretations. You're already being influenced by them. Right. So yeah. this is very much affecting yeah. public law, isn't it? This yeah. is big laws. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think uh, we, we, uh, I think we, you know, we, we. It's, it's too far to say that we don't have the rule of law in Hong Kong, but we need to be vigilant. I mean, there's no perfect system. Um, the system we have, though, needs to be ring fenced as much as possible. And uh, I think so. I think a lot of the a lot of the effort has to be in educating those across the border who have influence over Hong Kong that we are different and they can't be making those statements and, and that interpretations are really, really bad for our system here. It erodes the... It erodes the rule of law mm. in Hong Kong. So uh, I think uh, certainly in my context that uh, my contacts uh, that that hasn't been done forcefully enough. Right and, now, when I we think, have, I think we need to do that. Mm. Uh, like I said, those those in positions to do that and to uh, stand up for Hong Kong system need to do that much more robustly. Right now, when we have cases like the booksellers, the Causeway Bay booksellers, where n nobody on the Hong Kong side really made much noise about it at all, and then again, the slightly bizarre case in the Four Seasons Hotel, where mainland. Um, what do we call them? I don't know. But, but mainland people came down and spirited this guy away, and our police didn't seem to intervene in any way. Right, right. So, so those are all examples where we need to be more uh, robust in our response. Um, Tom Bingham, uh, in his book, The Rule of Law, even mentions, doesn't mention those particular incidents, but does mention the hallmarks of what isn't the rule of law. And he says this, uh, and this is written some time ago, he says, the hallmarks of a regime which flouts the rule of law are all too familiar. The midnight knock on the door, the sudden disappearance, the show trial, uh, confessions extracted by torture, and, uh, and goes on and on. That was human rights lawyer Mark Daly. It seems like only yesterday, at the very least just a few years ago, that the heavens opened and the last governor, Chris Patton, took off. And Hong Kong was under new management. And as we reach the end of the series now, I'd like to thank all of my guests who over the past 12 weeks have shown us how beyond any shadow of a doubt that we are truly 20 years on.